I'm a mom of Irish triplets, twins, and my third, who I had 18 months later. So I know a thing or two about baby gear and paraphernalia, what you need and what you don't. I only give an F about three Fs, form, the quality and durability of a product, functionality, and fair price. I recently discovered Baby Trends Cover Me 4-in-1 Car Seat. It's a convertible car seat that has a patent-pending canopy for overhead and side sun protection. It can be used for 4 to 100 pounds and in modes including rear-facing, toddler rear-facing, forward-facing, and belt-positioning booster. And get this, the Cover Me also has a very convenient recline system, which allows your child to find a comfortable position and limits the amount of space taken up by the seat when in the rear-facing position. My babies did not like having their knees scrunched up to their face, and rightfully so. Problem solved. Lastly, there's a no-twist, no-rethread harness and comfort cabin with multi-layered padding in conjunction with the UPF 50 Plus canopy I mentioned earlier. Baby Trend was founded in 1988 and it's a brand that's tried, tested, and true. I'm so glad to work with the female podcast collective, ASA, to bring you my code COVERME20 to receive 20% off when you visit babytrend.com backslash ASA, O-S-S-A. Again, cover me 20 to receive 20% off your order at babytrend.com backslash ASA. Safe travels. Hi, this is Rachel Blumenthal. And my experience on that's Total Mom Sense was anything but predictable. Hi, it's Kanika, and I'm back with a brand new season of That's Total Mom Sense, where I interview parenting experts, world-renowned thought leaders, best-selling authors, and trailblazing entrepreneurs on their incredible life stories and mom sense experiences. Hi, I'm Gabby Bernstein, and you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. It's me, Bobby Brown, on Total Mom Sense. Can't wait to share my story. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa, and you're listening to me on That's Total Mom Sense. Pandemic or not, these episodes will inspire you to make every single day count. Episodes release on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Join my tribe and subscribe wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. Kids had more visibility and over voice now than ever before. You know, gone were the days where you could just sort of put clothes in, in your home and say, where are those? Now where kids mm-hmm. are asking for all the brands that most parents, you know, probably even haven't even heard of before. And so we knew that we needed to have an aesthetic that really served that customer, but also served the parent. But most importantly, at every single touch point, really understood which type of consumer we were speaking to and make sure that we were tailoring the content, the voice and so forth to that customer. And very often that customer is the kid versus the parent. As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full, 
On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with That's Total Mom Sense. If you're a mom, chances are you're part of the cult following that the children's apparel brand Rockets of Awesome has garnered over the years. And if you don't know, now you know. Today, I'm joined by its founder and CEO, Rachel Blumenthal, who's a serial entrepreneur, fervent risk taker, and mother of two alongside her husband, Neil Blumenthal, CEO of the transformative and socially conscious lifestyle brand of eyewear, Barbie Parker. Together, they have an equally vested partnership in raising their two children, Griffin and Gemma. Rachel began her career at Yves Saint Laurent before launching her first entrepreneurial venture as designer and founder of the fashion jewelry brand, Rachel Lee. The brand was licensed to Glam House in 2011. Rachel then lent her hand to Warby Parker, which was co-founded by her husband, and before founding and acting as CEO of Cricket Circle, the trusted resource and editorial destination for everything baby and toddler. It was the insights and learnings from the Cricket Circle community, in addition to her own experience as a mother, that inspired the idea for Rockets of Awesome. The company's credo is to simplify the lives of parents and celebrate real life with kids, meltdowns included. Rockets of Awesome prides itself on pushing the boundaries of what it means to be a modern kids clothing brand, giving you the ability to shop whenever and however you want, whether you want to stock up when it's convenient for you or subscribe and save big. They'll always put the win-win, aka you and your kids loving the clothes and experience, first in everything they do. And made up of a team of moms, dads, aunts, and uncles, they understand the preferences and pain points to a T. Graphic T, that is. I'm excited to dive into this colorful conversation with Rachel. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start from the beginning. I love, you know, going down memory lane. Tell us about your childhood and some of your fondest memories. Well, I grew up in Cape Cod. And, you know, whenever I tell people that, they always say, oh, you mean you summered there? And (laughs) I say, no, I actually grew up there. So, you know, Cape Cod is a very low key place to grow up. There wasn't a lot of sort of pressure and competition socially, you know, everyone, it wasn't about what you were wearing or, you know, how much money your family had or anything like that. And so it was just a very simple, low-key way of growing up. My parents are originally from New York and New Jersey. And so fortunately, I had the benefit of visiting New York City and lots of different sort of areas beyond Cape Cod growing up and have exposure to that. And, you know, for me, the minute I saw New York City, I knew that's where I wanted to live. So um, I mentioned that only because Cape Cod is such a lovely place, but many people just never leave there. Probably really my, my favorite sort of memories of growing up there was really just being very appreciative of, of the simplicity of it all, really being able to be a kid, really being able to sort of try lots of different activities and sports and things like that. I was a competitive figure skater, and that was something really important to me growing up. But, you know, it wasn't a place where you knew brands or, you know, what people had. It just none of it mattered. Yeah. 
I, I love that. And I think that that's how childhood should be, you know, wholesome and fun. So tell us about some of the lessons that your parents taught you growing up. You know, I think that my parents instilled really the necessity to create opportunities for yourself and to really push beyond what is presented to you and and ask lots of questions and being curious. And, you know, maybe some of that was just that because I grew up in such a simple insular place, I knew that I wanted so much more and knew that my parents had so much more from an experience perspective growing up themselves. And I, and I wanted that. And so I knew that I had to get off of Cape Cod. I knew that I had to live in a city. I went to school in Boston. And for me, that was just too small of a city. And I knew I had to get into New York. And, you know, while my parents have always been incredibly supportive, you know, there are sort of foundational expectations of having a job and being able to pay your way to be able to live in New York City. And so, you know, for me, it was about, you know, how do I get there? How do I get a job as quickly as possible and be able to then sort of chart my course? Yes. Yeah. Amazing. And you have been resourceful from, you know, day one. How did you decide on pursuing fashion as, you know, your career choice? Growing up on Cape Cod, I was really only exposed to doctors and lawyers, and I didn't know really that fashion could be a career. Obviously, I knew it was, but I didn't really understand what the roles were. I didn't understand that it was sort of a well-respected field, if you will. I just I had no visibility. I was very naive. And when I moved to New York, I had a friend that was working in the PR department of Christian Dior, and... I was like, oh my God, that's the most glamorous thing ever. And, you know, meanwhile, she's like working in the closet and and never, you know, leaving that little closet that she was organizing samples in. But to me, it was the most glamorous thing ever. And she sent an invitation to a sample sale and CC'd me and every other fashion publicist in New York City. And I was like, this is my opportunity because I didn't know a soul when I moved to New York. You know, I didn't have sort of family members or friends that could get me into the industry. So I took all the email addresses, I BCC'd them and I sent them my resume. And shockingly, people responded. And I remember calling my mom being like, it worked. People are responding. (laughs) I have interviews, you know, it was so crazy. And that was really the beginning. I was, uh, I interviewed about four different fashion houses. I was hired at Yves Saint Laurent and, you know, the woman that hired me, who I'm still close with today, she was like, yeah, you know, you were from Boston because I went to school in Boston. She went to school in Boston, grew up in Boston. And she was like, you know, I liked the, you know, I liked that we had something in common and you seem smart. And I figured that you'd, you know, figure it out. And that's what I did. You know, I was just thrown in and, you know, really straight into the fire and and how to figure it out. And I think that's really where I thrive. Yes, that's amazing. Um, so I also went to school in Boston. Um, I was at BU and you and Neil were at Tufts, right? We were. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's where your, I feel like courtship began. Um, so tell us about how you met. So Neil and I met uh, sort of preterm a freshman year and you know, we just sort of met socially and ultimately we ended up having the same circle of friends and would, you know, see each other at lots of different things. But 
we, you know, we, we didn't date in college. We actually dated each other's friends all through college. (laughs) We coincidentally studied abroad in Spain together. So experience, which is nice, but we didn't ultimately get together until after college. And, you know, what's really nice about that is that we have the shared history, but we also had sort of our own independent experiences. Yeah, totally. That's so great. What was it that attracted to you about him? Neil was like a foreign species, uh, you know, in the early days of knowing him because he was such a city kid. He's from New York City. He grew up downtown. He's just such a city kid. And I grew up with like small town, you know, beach, beach type kids. And, you know, I, I think I was curious. I was like, this is, this is interesting. What, what is this that I don't (laughs) totally understand? Um, So I think I was, I was curious and interested and, and just, you know, all through college, fascinated by meeting lots of different people. But, you know, ultimately, I think that we ended up connecting and and then getting together just over, you know, a relationship and friendship that really grew over time. Yeah, absolutely. What was your favorite place on Boylston? Well, I would frequent Jasmine Sola a lot for um, anyone who doesn't know. It's sort of like, it was sort of like the intermix of its time. And I remember my mom getting the credit card bills and she was like, what is this Jasmine Sola? Cause I wasn't allowed to shop. Right. And I was like, Oh, that's like the school store where I buy, you know, like all the things I need for school. And yeah. then, you know, I think they came for like visiting day and we were on Newbury and my mom was like, that is not the school store, you know, like <laughs> hand over the credit card. Right. That's so funny. Um, and what about just hangouts? Do you remember... I don't know. We used to go to like Aria. And, um, yeah, we used to go yeah. to all those places. Neil was actually a club promoter back in the day. Oh my so goodness! He used to promote Aria and um, like a bunch of the clubs on Lansdowne. Yeah, Mantra. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you know, we we definitely frequented those. We we spent a lot of time on campus. You know, I think the best part about being in school in Boston is just that you had exposure to. Um, you know, at Tufts, we had the exposure to a campus school, but then also to the city, which was really nice. Yes. Yeah, totally. I love that we had that very unique experience in college. Um, so your jewelry line, it began as like just a fun side hustle passion project, right? Yeah. So I was a publicist at Yves Saint Laurent and I was in this incredibly creative environment, but my role itself wasn't particularly creative. You know, I was responsible for every time you saw an Yves Saint Laurent item, men's, women's ready-to-wear accessories, I was responsible for working with the editors to get into the magazine. Um, And then I also worked with celebrity stylists to style celebrities for events. I loved the job. It was amazing. But I also sort of equated to feeling like I was a trained monkey and (laughs) I could sort of do it in my sleep. And, you know, it wasn't particularly challenging. And... Because I was in this creative environment with like this fashion and it was such a time of fashion. Tom Ford was a designer at the time. You know, I really sort of needed that outlet because I'm very much sort of half business, half creative. So I went to the bead stores on 6th Avenue and bought a bunch of materials and started messing around with making jewelry. And I handmade myself a ring. It was this like big cocktail ring with semi-precious stones and gold wire and... I was wearing it at work one day and editor friends of mine that worked at Lucky Magazine saw it and decided to feature me as a designer. You know, they said, oh, we're going to feature you in this new section called One to Watch, Up and Coming Designers. You know, we're going to do a photo shoot your apartment. It's going to be great. And, you know, when you're in the whole 
PR communications world, you understand that a lot of it is smoke and mirrors. And Mm so I thought it was funny. I really didn't take it very seriously. Then the editors called for credit checks. So that's when they want to know the brand name, the price, you know, the, the retailer. And on the spot, I made up a name. And so I said, Rachel Lee, which was my first and middle name. I, there was no company. There was no name at that moment. And I said, but you know, I'm on a call or in a meeting. I have to call you back. And I basically spent that weekend going up and down Columbus and Madison Avenue, trying to find a retailer to take my product on consignment. I think I had three rings or something like that. And I found a retailer who's going to take it on consignment. I made up a price point based on, you know, competitors in the market and covering right. margin and so forth. And that was my jewelry business. And Lucky really put me on the map. They had such a massive distribution and and real credibility at the time. And then about a month later, Daily Candy featured me. So, you know, at the time, Daily Candy was like the only game in town for digital totally. content of like what you needed to know it was one thing every day. And, you know, they said these Rachel Lee rings are like the thing and it just exploded. And so overnight I was doing trunk shows at Henry Bendel and shop up picked me up as one of their first jewelry designers. And, you know, I was really sort of on my way, but at the same time I was doing, I was a one woman show. I was doing production. I was doing shipping. I was doing PR sales, you know, the whole thing really just teaching myself along the way. I, you know, was an economics and political science double major. So I had no business being a jewelry designer, but, (laughs) you know, I just sort of saw an opportunity and ran with it and built that business over the course of eight years. We were in about 500 retailers worldwide. We did private label for American Eagle, Target, and J. Crew. I hit sort of a learning curve about eight years in and just felt like I plateaued and I really wasn't learning anymore. And I took an opportunity to license the business about nine years ago. So that was sort of my first entrepreneurial journey and truly accidental entrepreneur. You know, if you had asked me at the time, I would have told you that I was completely risk adverse. I, you know, was going to climb the ladder. I was going to be, I was going to go to business school. I was going to be the president or CEO of somebody else's company someday. I was never going to do this on my own. Amazing. This reminds me of, uh, you know, another guest that I had on Rebecca Minkoff. Um, Do you know her well? Yeah, I know Becky well. Yes. Okay. So same story. It was, you know, she had her morning after bag and then even with her distress tees, her I love New York tees, especially when, you know, Jenna Altman was wearing it around 9-11, it just became this phenomenon. Everyone needed one. And she was working backwards to be able to fulfill the demand. So what was it like during that time? Because now we can shop on Instagram and everything is literally at our fingertips. And, you know, both of you were so tenacious and scrappy and built your product lines from nothing and got that exposure that was set to the masses. It's really It was, yeah, it was really such a different time. I mean... It was a time where if you got your item on a celebrity and People Magazine or In Touch or whoever picked it up, or if it was on a TV show, you would just immediately see the correlation and you would be sold out and you wouldn't be able to keep up. And it could be a sort of item-driven strategy within a more holistic assortment strategy. It was also a time where 
you know, there, there weren't a million websites, there weren't a million retailers, big box, you know, big sort of um, wholesale retailers were super important to everybody, though, you know, at that time, we all had sort of early D to C businesses, you, you didn't call it direct to consumer, you just like sold it on your website. <laughs> and you it wasn't a startup, you had a small business. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, there's a lot that's changed. You know, I, I probably for Becky as well, I can't remember. But you know, for me, it was, you know, a, a foundational business in terms of my sophistication of understanding, you know, how do you sort of scale and operate these businesses? You know, I mm. never raised capital. I didn't know that you could raise capital. I had a line of credit from a bank that I would use from time to time. But, you know, we were extremely profitable and you know, that that was the status quo back then. And now the status quo is raise venture capital, don't be profitable and like raise as much as humanly possible and just like grow as as fast as possible. And, you know, I think for most businesses back then, at least in the consumer space, it was very much a more of a slower, steadier pace of growth. And because there were less brands around, you really could differentiate and stand out from a crowd. But the retailers that you sold to were hypercritical. It really mattered from a credibility perspective, which retailers you sold to. You know, you had to be, you know, for the contemporary brands, you had to be in Barney's and Bergdorf's and Bendel's and sort of all of those places to have the credibility to, to, you know, sell elsewhere. Stick around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Another kind of serendipitous moment for you uh, that that you know put Rachel Lee on the map even further was being on Oprah's favorite things. So tell us about that story because it just it gives me the chills. Well, I was sick with the flu, and um, until that point, never believed in the flu. I was just like, oh, it's just like a bad cold, and I had the flu, and I was in bed two weeks straight, like couldn't even lift my head off the pillow. Um, someone from Oprah's team called and said, you know, basically like call us back and. That was the only thing I did in two weeks was call them back, basically. And it turned out that my brand was named Oprah's Favorite Things, which was completely shattering in the best way possible. And probably a couple months after that came out, I was in Philadelphia. We were living half in New York, half in Philadelphia. Neil was in business school at Wharton. And I had Oprah in the background as I was working that afternoon as I did because Oprah, you know, was, was everything. Mm-hmm. And James Taylor was a guest on the show that day. And so they had J- James onto the stage and they start playing fire and rain as he walks out, Gail and Oprah walk out and they're both wearing my jewelry. You know, it was this crazy sort of kismet moment because when I was deciding to leave Yves Saint Laurent in the early days to start my jewelry line full time, it was a really hard decision. You know, I was going from something that was a sure thing to a complete risk. And I was at the time very risk adverse. And Neil was my boyfriend at the time, and he had come over to convince me and sort of guide me in making that decision. And we had James Taylor playing Fire and Rain in the background. And so in that moment where James Taylor is playing Fire and Rain in the background, Oprah and Gail walk out on stage and they're wearing my jewelry. I just started crying hysterically and like probably laughing at the same time because I just couldn't believe um, how this could all be sort of falling into place. So it was oh it was one of those... Complete pinch me moments. Yes, yes. And so is Fire and Rain your song? I mean not necessarily. No, it's yeah. just it'll I'll always just have that memory. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. And now for a quick break 
brought to you by my brand sponsor, Homer. Hi, this is Kanika Chandragupta, founder and host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm Stephanie Dua, president and co-founder of Homer. And this is At Home with Homer. Homer is the essential early learning program for kids aged two to eight. We have the most comprehensive app available for early learning skills that you can find on iOS or Google Play. And you can also find our really fun explore kits that help kids with their math, their reading, and social emotional learning that you can find on our website, learnwithhomer.com. On this weekly segment, we're going to cover a range of topics from raising confident readers to developing emotional intelligence. These are the skills that will carry your child through school and life and resonate most when taught at home by you, their most important teacher. So grab a notepad, your phone, or your mental notebook to remember the tips shared during this segment. And now on to At Home with Homer. This segment is on building math confidence. So math can be daunting for kids and adults. And I know Homer recently added new math content to its learning program, Homer Learn and Grow. Stephanie, what tips can you share with our families to ensure that we're setting our kids up to be confident in math? Great. Yes. Thanks. That's a great question, Kanika, and it's great to be with you today. You know, math can be a real point of anxiety for both children and adults alike, by the way. Many adults still fear some math. My husband, Andre, is an incredible mathematician and always loved math. And I really have to credit him with instilling a passion and a love for math in my girls when they were really young. And it was important to him that girls viewed themselves as being great at math. But I like to think of it as how do we make math pretty simple for parents? With They're busy. They've got a lot going on. It can feel like another job. And so how do we make it really simple? So there are four things I like to suggest to parents. One is make math part of everyday life. It's very easy at dinner time um, when they're pulling their clothes out of the closet, when they're measuring themselves to look at those as opportunities to count, to name the numbers, to measure the height. And so that they start to see that math is not some scary thing. It's just really part of everyday life. The second thing is math thinking. Children are really natural mathematicians. And so math is really about exploring and problem solving. And you can talk to them really early about problem solving strategies using math language in everyday life. One of my favorite nonprofits out there is called Bedtime Math, and they do a great job of helping parents and kids at bedtime think about how do you talk about math in ways that are really part of your everyday life for young children. And so I always recommend that as a resource. The third is really modeling math confidence. One of the things that we found in our research, and that many people will tell you, is that when a parent a mom or a dad or a teacher, any adult in a child's life starts to say, well, I wasn't good at math. It starts to really model, oh, well, I might not be good at math either. We can name something as maybe it was challenging for us in the way we overcame that Mm. and now how we use math. But it's important to say, I'm not good at math because that kind of starts to form a narrative for a child that they may not also be good at that. Mm. And what I also love is kids are amazing at these kind of I did it moments, these little wins that happen every single day on their path to learning. So keep an eye out and celebrate those moments when they do something and it just clicks. You know, they're counting the goldfish, you know, in the little aquarium and they're they're counting all of their numbers. And they say, look, I counted four goldfish. You know, those are really moments to celebrate for children. Wow, that's amazing. Really, really great tips. Thank you. 
We hope you enjoy this week's At Home with Homer segment. To download the app, visit learnwithhomer.com backslash momsense, M-O-M-S-E-N-S-E, to receive your very own 60-day free trial. Your kids are going to love playing the games, watching the visual stories, and more. Now, back to the interview. So tell us about like fast forwarding to your motherhood journey. Yeah. So fast forward. So I licensed a jewelry brand right after I had our uh, first child, Griffin. He's now 10. And, you know, after sort of going through that process and having him like every new parent, you feel like there are so many opportunities to innovate and um, level up sort of that experience that you've gone through. And what blew my mind was that I received probably 40 Excel spreadsheets of what to buy when you have a baby and they were like color coded and, you know, had a grid and like this whole thing. And, you know, the more sort of degrees somebody had, the more color coding and intense the spreadsheet was. And as somebody that really appreciates organization like that, but also someone that probably values cutting through the clutter and, life hacks and and sort of some, you know, like cliff notes, lived by cliff notes in high school. You know, for me, these spreadsheets just sort of blew my mind. And I was like, why does everyone need to reinvent the wheel? Why can't there be sort of a platform that aggregates all these recommendations and makes it easier for customers? So I launched a platform called Cricket Circle, which was really, you know, a cliff notes of what to buy when you have a baby. It was based on a very simple uh, algorithm and technology platform that we had built. It was sort of the three best products in every category. We would test them for you, tell them, tell you, you know, what they meant in sort of layman's terms. So, you know, someone who's never touched a stroller before, it's like, this one has a telescoping handle and this one doesn't. And you're like, what's the hell a telescoping handle? And do I need one? <laughs> and so we'd really sort of like cut through the clutter for you. And we had a baby registry and also a content platform that would write real sort of, again, like cut through the clutter, you know, no noise, little stories, you know, 25 things that nobody tells you about having a baby, 10 things you have to pack for the hospital, the other five things everyone tells you, but you shouldn't pack, you know, those (laughs) stories like that. And, you know, Cricket Circle really built a very, very fast and super engaged following because we were probably the first of of its time, at least in that sort of uh, category, to cut through the clutter and really talk to you the way your best friend would talk to you. You know, we didn't mince words, we didn't beat around the bush, and people just really appreciated that. And so, as we were building that business, um, you know, what we were learning was that it was sort of a complete unlock for customers. But as their kids sort of grew out of that baby, you know, very early toddler stage, parents became more confident. They felt comfortable making buying decisions. And what became sort of the never ending pain point was that their kids were outgrowing their clothes with such feverish pace. And, you know, as somebody that loves creating solutions and wants to make people's lives easier, I was, I was living the pain as well. I couldn't believe that, you know, every three to four months I was replacing everything in the dresser. I thought I was doing it wrong. And people were like, Mm -hmm. no, your kids are just growing. We did a bunch of, you know, surveying and focus groups and 
uh, really defined the strategy for Rockets of Awesome and launched Rockets of Awesome out of Cricket Circle. We carried over a bunch of the editorial content and strategy, but really focusing on how do we deliver a better shopping solution for families. You know, ultimately what we landed on was if we could create a more sophisticated data science-driven algorithm coupled with the technology platform that we had started building already and make really awesome, stylish, comfortable kids clothes and accessible price point, you know, could we deliver it to your home right on time for when your kids are out growing their clothes and just make it easier for you? So we started with a subscription because it really aligned with that behavior. You know, I'm somebody that is completely allergic to trendy business models. And it kind of, you know, at the time back in 2016, subscriptions were like the end all be all. And that frankly made me very nervous. But for mm-hmm. this customer, it very much uniquely suited their lifestyle of that reoccurring frequency of replacing clothes. And so we started with subscription and then um, later rolled out e-com. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I love how beautifully curated they are. They stay true to a child's unique personal style. You know, what we have to be most mindful of is sure, the parents are the customer, but the consumers are the kids, and they're going to be very opinionated about what they wear. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that that was, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me was that. They, you know, it's a $35 billion business in the US alone. You have, you know, big market leaders like Carter's who, you know, are four and a half billion dollar top line businesses. But what was super clear to me was, you know, one, they didn't have the technology and data science infrastructure that I knew was going to be the future of any business. And then the second was that they really were out of touch and didn't understand the modern consumer. You know, they didn't know that either recognize or probably really prioritize that kids had more visibility and more of a voice now than ever before. You know, gone were the days where you could just sort of put clothes in in your home and say, where are those? Now where kids Mm -hmm. are asking for all the brands that most parents, you know, probably haven't even heard of before. And so we knew that we needed to have an aesthetic that really served that customer, but also served the parent. But most importantly, at every single touch point, really understood which type of consumer we were speaking to and make sure that we were tailoring the content, the voice and so forth to that customer. And very often that customer is the kid versus the parent. Yes, absolutely. Um, and tell us about you know the collections and the price points. So we launch a collection four times a year um, aligned with the changing of the season. Um, the aesthetic is... Definitely very stylish. It's not juvenile. You know, often parents feel like, oh, that's something I would wear. So it's, you know, it's kind of sort of pared down from like a mini me aesthetic. We always hit on sort of what are the core trends. And we we tend to be several seasons ahead of the trends. We we never, you know, like once everyone's doing tie-dye, we are like long gone and like never. <laughs> designing tie-dye again kind of thing. Um, But I'd say most importantly, we really lean into the fabrics and the touch and the feel. And so all of the products have to be super, super soft and stretchy and something that when, you know, the kids put their hand in the box, they're like, oh my God, I have to wear this. I have to put it on. They like take their clothes off immediately and put it on because it's so soft and comfy. Yes. Yes. I want to just share two reasons why I love the, the brand. One is that it's so unique from the others on the market. There's no princess. There's no 
that kind of thing. And I mean, you know, I have um, a daughter who has a twin brother and though she's very girly, she doesn't really like princesses, you know, and I'm all for it. You know, And it's just, I think that that those labels are really off-putting when you see them. The other thing is uh, the wear and tear. I have three kids that I had in a year and a half. So the twins and then my youngest is 18 months um, after them. You know, I feel like one thing is the versatility. A lot of stuff is unisex. And then secondly, I can preserve these hand-me-downs for my youngest because it's not too far off um, that I'm saving them and know that they still can kind of uh, stand the test of time. So I love it. Yeah, we really want the product to be, you know, something that if you really, really care about style, it very much connects with you and you sort of appreciate all those design details. And if you don't care about style and you really just care about, you know, comfort and, you know, to your point, product that really lasts, nothing is polarizing. And so it's really interesting to try to design a line that is brand defining, but not polarizing, which makes mm-hmm. it really fun. And the beauty of the subscription to your point is that it is personalized for every single kid. So every kid gets their own box. No two boxes are the same. And that enables us to do a box where, you know, one day, you know, we have customers, you know, one day this, you know, her son wants to wear a button down shirt and look just like dad. And the next day he wants to wear a tutu and dress like his sister. And we can personalize the boxes to be able to do that. We're also really sort of thoughtful about knowing that kids clothes you know, they go through them so quickly. And, you know, regardless of how much money you have to spend, nobody wants to spend a lot of money on kids' clothes. You know, you mm-hmm. all parents want to feel savvy, right? We want to feel yes. like we like hacked, got a deal. hacked life and like got a deal. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we really structure the pricing of the box based on, you know, the more you keep, the more you save. And so, you know, if you keep everything in your box, you get upwards of 35, 40, 45% off. And that's every day of the year. That's not sort of like a one-off discount. That's really the way we operate it because we want to make sure that everything from the size and the fit to the quality, the aesthetic and the pricing is always really reliable. Yes. And all the garments are under 40 bucks, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and usually well under 30. Right. Amazing. The other thing that I love is that you kind of take information and insights from your kids. Gemma once told you, why do you have the zipper at the back? I can't put this on myself, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, it's you know, it's those things where, you know, as an adult, you're like, oh my God, like the back zipper is like so cute. And then, you know, I realized that my daughter was wearing a rash guard backwards. And I was like, why are you wearing your backwards? She's like, Mom, I can't do the zipper myself in the back. And yeah. you know, it just reminds you that kids want to be independent and they can yes. be independent. And you know, we really don't do a lot of zippers in general because of that. We would never do, you know, little buttons down the back while they're beautiful. You know, no kid wants to um, wants to wear something that they can't do independently. And so, you know, all of the feedback we were doing, we had, you know, these great jeans at one point where they were actually a knit jeans. So almost like a sweatshirt material. And, you know, everyone internally is like, oh my God, the knit jeans are amazing. Like who wouldn't wear the knit jeans? And she wouldn't wear the jeans. And I was like, why aren't you wearing the jeans? And she's like, mom, they're itchy. And what we didn't realize is that while it was sweatshirt material, 
because it was so close to the skin, the fabric actually like kind of felt a little itchy. Okay. Even though <laughs> as a sweatpant, when they're super loose, you would never feel it. And so it's things like that where we, you know, are wearing it on kids that we're able to really get ahead of it. And then, you know, our team reacts immediately to make sure that, you know, it's not that fabric or we move the zipper or whatever it is. Yeah. I'm just picturing um, Gemma as your fit model. Being like, fix this, fix that. Yeah, yes, exactly. (laughs) Oh my goodness, awesome. Um, So you and Neil were building, you know, both of your empires alongside each other and it could have, I mean, I feel like it must have been so hectic. I think what's been interesting is we've always sort of like flip-flopped when the other one has been completely crazed. So when Morby was getting up and running, Rachel Lee was, you know, sort of a well-oiled machine. And then by the time I was launching Cricket Circle and then Rockets of Awesome, Warby, you know, was more or less a well-oiled machine by those points also. And so that's helped. But, you know, I think more than anything, you know, two things really ground us in making sure that life isn't too chaotic. One is that life is chaotic and we live in the chaos and that is normal to us. And I think that we probably thrive on the chaos a little bit, but we live in very organized chaos. You know, we're Mm. very disciplined to our calendars and our schedule and that makes it planned and organized and like not chaotic, even though it's busy. We also share a Google calendar. So that means we never have to talk to each other, basically. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but it really makes sort of planning and organizing, you know, we don't have to wait on each other to be like, hey, I want to do this thing. You know, can we do it? Um, we can just look on the calendar. So right, it's just right. efficient. Yes. And then, you know, I think the other big thing is because we both live and, and have lived very, very similar lives almost our entire careers, we just understand innately. And you know, we never once say to each other, you know, why do you have to take that call at night? Or why do you have to fly, you know, for that meeting? Or, you know, I can't believe like you can't do this, you know? So we just understand it so naturally that it, that it reduces sort of any of that pressure or um, stress that I think you often see in a dynamic where one person is an entrepreneur and the other one isn't. Yes, yes. No, and I love that kind of equal footing that you both have. I think it's so important. Um, I had listened to your interview with Poppy Harlow, and um, I love when you share the story about how you forgot your passport. <laughs> and you, get to, you got to stay home for a couple of days and have the rest of the family go on vacation. Um, and you had your own staycation. Neil, I have to say, it's like about. a great life tip that, you know, if by accident, your passport is expired. Um, you might, you know, sort of earn yourself a three-day vacation until you get a rush passport. It's not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he didn't give you shit for it. And that's so important, right? It's just like, it happens. We're busy. Yeah, and I I can say that I wouldn't have given him shit for it. So <laughs> I give him a lot of credit. But in fairness, we were traveling with with his parents, so he wasn't alone. Okay, um, okay. So he had backup, but yeah, yeah. I mean, Neil is um, extremely understanding, and you know, doesn't sort of like sweat the small stuff. That's great. Uh, what was it like raising capital? It is hard, regardless. Um, there's another interview I just want to bring up with Reagan Moya Jones, who when she was starting Aiden and Anae. 
At the time, only 2% of female founders hit the 1 million mark. It was just such a sliver. And now it's not the case, but we still have a ways to go. And so, yeah, just some of the conversations that you've had with investors was um, baffling, to be <laughs> honest. And so what, what did they ask you being a female founder? And how did you like, you know, tackle those questions head on? I've had a very different experience raising capital than Neil and, you know, lots of other guys that I know. And I know many women, you know, it's it's a very similar story. And, you know, and I can't say that these questions don't just come from men. I mean, they come from women investors as well, which shame on us. But, you know, I was asked so many questions, you know, when I was raising capital for Cricket Circle, I had a child and, you know, I would get questions like, so, you know, how much time do you spend on this? Or they would say things like, you know, your husband, you know, is super successful with Warby. What does that mean for you? And, you know, (laughs) or, or, you know, how do you guys, you know, how do you balance your time? You know, just sort of like these ridiculous open-end questions. And, and honestly, I really looked at it as a challenge and I was like, all right, let's make this a game. Like this is going to be fun because I wanted them to hear what they were saying. And so, you know, very respectfully and and very calmly, I would say, you know, things like, well, what do you mean? Because I would want them, I would like want to force them to like, you know, you know, articulate and what they were asking and hear themselves say it. Yeah. Um, Or if they would say, you know, how do you spend your time? You know, I would look at them, you know, dead in the face and say, exactly the way my husband spends his time. Like, you know, what what do you, this is the most ridiculous line of questioning. So that was always frustrating. You know, I think if anything, it's always been fire under my ass. It's always been real motivation to just prove everybody wrong. And, you know, I continue to be on that journey. And, you know, that's what keeps me running and fighting every single day. But you know, it's it's really frustrating. It's super disappointing. You know, I also think that men and women are also very different, right? Mm-hmm. So guys often walk into a room to raise capital and they're, you know, super confident and they're like, we're going to build like the next Facebook. And they're clearly not. And women yeah. walk in and they're like, we think we can do this. And, you know, we're, we all do it. And, you know, I think that the challenge is for women you know, I've gotten feedback of, you know, like, oh, you're like really abrasive or you're aggressive. When I've like gone in trying to be more confident, I don't think that anyone that knows me would ever describe me as like aggressive. So, you know, I think, I think it's challenging, but I think more than anything, having the awareness around it and really, you know, taking, taking the higher road and using it as motivation and, you know, probably more than anything, helping to prioritize which investors you do talk to. You know, mm-hmm. I think speaking to to you know investors that are super passionate about your category or you know the product that you that you're launching. You know, often people say that you should go talk to the funds who tried to get into a round of a competitive business but couldn't get in because you know that means they like your category. So hopefully that will change over time. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think so. And then would you say that like accepting the the raise from um, an investor like that is kind of selling out or no? You know, I think it's challenging. I think that if you're in a position to, you know, have complete sort of control and scrutiny over the investors that you take capital from, then that's amazing. And if you don't, 
you know, I think you, you sort of, you take it having complete knowledge and insight and visibility to, you know, who this is that you're getting in bed with and really sort of doing what you can to control the dynamic of the relationship. And, you know, at the end of the day, investors pay attention to, and they spend time on the businesses that are thriving. It's completely binary to them. It's like, you're either going to be a billion dollars or you're going to be like nothing. And there's like nothing in between for them. Mm -hmm. And so depending on which camp you fall into that more than anything ends up dictating the relationship that you have with your investors. Sure. Sure. Um, well, Warby has become a triple unicorn, <laughs> now, which is really remarkable. And so, you know, how did you help the success come to be? I mean, I take absolutely zero credit for Rockets, uh, for, for Warby Parker. Um, they are such an exceptional group of founders and best friends. I mean, the four of them are best friends today. We go on vacation together once a year. Like we're all family. They're just, they're just such a unique group of leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think for them, really their success was in being deadly focused on what they were and what they weren't. You know, I think an example is that as they really unlock the craze of, of glasses everyone was sort of trying to convince them, you know, get into different categories. You've got to diversify. Okay. So like what accessory category are you going to be in now? And they really didn't fall into, you know, that path. They really took, you know, the laser focused path of we are in the world of eye care and we are going to do, you know, deliver every solution around eye care. And that is, that is, you know, our focus right now. And, you know, they've since been able to launch contacts and, you know, you can do an eye exam from your iPhone. They, you know, have, you know, doctors in all their stores where you can get eye exams and checkups and things like that. And so, you know, they've really just been laser focused and, and really focused on their mission. And, you know, I think that we've both learned a lot from each other over the years, you know, the guys learned from me around fashion and, and, you know, marketing in the PR world and, and supply chain and stuff like that in the beginning. And I've learned endlessly from them and their team. And we all play in sort of the same world, but have our own independent businesses and can really learn from each other, get give advice, get advice, support each other. That's so great. Um, and I love that you're introducing this to your children early on, because in one of our conversations, you shared how Griffin wanted a lemonade stand. And he really understood the ins and outs of being an entrepreneur. So how did you teach him that? Yeah. So, you know, uh, we did a lemonade stand on, you know, on our block in the city and, you know, he had to go buy all the ingredients and I gave him the money by the ingredients. And, you know, he made all this money from the lemonade stand. And I said, okay, well, you know, your cost of goods is $30 or whatever it was. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, you have to pay me $30. (laughs) And I had to explain to him that, you know, it costs money to make money and that, you know, every single time he buys ingredients to sell his lemonade, there's a cost associated with that. Um, he also learned about amortizing because we bought him a fold, a foldable table for his lemonade stand. And so he could amortize it over lots of lemonade stands right, right. that he has. <laughs> And now he's doing this incredible new program. It's this, it's this program called Rocket Club. And they basically 
are, you know, they have a, a weekly sort of class or meeting. It's, it's virtual right now. And they learn sort of everything in and around STEM and entrepreneurship. And, you know, he and these kids are now going to go and they're physically and actually going to launch their own business. You know, they're like eight to 11 year olds and this is what they're going to do. And so they're last week, he learned about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and all these things. And I'm like, can you explain that to me? Because yeah. I don't really understand <laughs> it. You know, he's learning about valuations and the public markets and the private markets. And so it's just, you know, it's the one thing probably that he does that he's like, I really like this. This is really cool. And, you know, first of all, I'm I'm so grateful and appreciative to them and their program. But, you know, I see a little bit of myself in him in that I just, I, I couldn't wait to go start working. You know, I did well in school and, you know, school was fine. But to me, school was really social. But all I wanted to do was get into the world and start working. And I really see that with him. And I think that's why he's so sort of motivated and excited about this program. Wow. I can't wait to see what he builds. I know. I know. Me too. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Amazing. Is um, Gemma similar in her interest? Is she like... Gemma's more... I, I mean, she's still young. She's five years old. She, yeah. She's much more interested in all things that are sort of like artistic and creative. She mm. thinks that she has like a YouTube channel, though she does not. <laughs> um, and so she like makes videos all the time. And she's always coming up with like, you know, different art projects of like building things with different sort of like scraps around the house. So she is like hyper, hyper creative. Wow. So cool. What is a typical conversation at the dinner table? Well, Gemma spends like half her time getting up and doing cartwheels and <laughs> performing some show for us. Okay. And we usually talk about, you know, what meetings we had that day. And Griffin will tell us something that he learned in Rocket Club or, you know, something that they're learning in school. He is is learning coding in school. And so I actually had my CTO do a session with his group so that they could learn about, you know, what it's like to be a CTO and the the type of languages that, you know, different businesses use on the coding side. But it's really across the map. And I think the coolest thing is the type of questions they ask. You know, one night Griffin said, Mom, you know, I've been thinking a lot about your supply chain. And you know, I know that you get the fabric from one place and you get the zipper from the other place. And then the fabric has to turn a color and then it turns into a shirt. I'm trying to figure out like, does somebody, someone must deliver the fabric to the one place that cuts the shirt. And, you know, he's sort of like piecing it all together. And it just sort of blew my mind that, you know, I think you forget as an adult that kids are always listening and they're paying attention to every last thing. And, you know, just from hearing little conversations here or there, like overhearing us on the phone or on Zoom or whatever it is, it was starting to pick it up and thinking about, you know, how does it really work? Wow. I think it's so wonderful how he has such a keen interest and at this age, I mean, it's just the world is his oyster. What legacy would you like to leave behind? Well, I mean, I really do hope that we're able to build Rockets of Awesome into a household brand that lasts the test of time. You know, I really hope that it can sort of be as big, if not bigger than the Carters of the world. But I think underlying in that more than anything is that the brand really stands for celebrating and instilling confidence in kids and making sure that every single day when they get dressed, they feel like the best version of themselves and they can be whoever they want to be that way, that day. And 
that's really what it's about. It's about that confidence in kids and also the confidence in parents, giving parents sort of the validation that you're doing a great job. It's really hard. You're doing a great job. Like, don't feel like you have to do everything that everyone else is doing. You're you're doing great. And <laughs> for both of those versions of our customer, that's what this is about. You know, yes, yeah. we sell awesome kids' clothes, but it really is about instilling that level of independence and confidence across our customer base. Yes. Can you share a mom sense moment that you've had where you trusted your built-in sixth sense, that intuition that we all have? You know, I tend to be very type A and want to sort of like control the destiny of everything. And I really made a very concerted effort to not be that way as a parent. And so I specifically did not read a single book about pregnancy or any child development stage books ever. Probably one, because I am too busy and no one made the cliff notes, but also (laughs) I really, really didn't want to instill that pressure on my kids and being a mom, I wanted to really follow my intuition, follow my kids' lead and and make decisions based on that. And I think that that has made me a much calmer and relaxed person and hopefully a better mom. And, you know, people always say like, you know, your kids better than anybody. And it's really, and that, you know, it's, it's scary when people say that and you say like, what if I missed something or I forgot something? But you really do. And you you pick up on these things and you do have to pay attention and you have to be aware and you have to be present. You know, if you are, you can make great decisions that are completely on point for your family that you don't need an expert to sort of tell you what to do. Yes, totally agree. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? Fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, yes. we're all faking it, right? We're all just yeah. like trying to get there and yep. where is there? You know, it that I think for everybody continues to evolve and shift. But you know, more than anything, everyone, whether they are at, you know, whether someone would perceive them at the top of their career or someone is perceived as sort of just getting going, you know, everyone sort of has that, you know, inferiority complex or feeling like, you know, they don't have it all together. And, you know, the more that you can sort of fake it until you get there, until you figure it out, until you unlock it, I think it serves people really well. Yes. Agreed. It's now time for Mom Hall, when we share products we love. So is there a product that you're loving right now? Well, this is kind of generic, but I live by sort of a strategy of having a pouch and this pouch houses every sort of necessity that I need. And so it has like my earbuds, my like mini wallet, my keys. It has hand sanitizer now and a face mask and migraine medicine because I get lots of migraines and hair elastic and kind of like the essentials that you need every day. And that pouch sort of goes with me wherever I go. So, you know, in real life, when I had different purses and I was switching out purses, it just made it really easy because I would just like take the pouch and put it in the next thing. Um, You know, I never have to worry about like, do I have my stuff? Because it's always in this pouch. And I find that it saves me a lot of time. So smart. Is there a brand of the pouch or it's just any 
I tend to like the Prada nylon pouches mm-hmm. and I still have a bunch of them that I bought at the outlet in Italy and, mm-hmm. you know, like 20 years ago when I studied abroad and they have lasted a very long time. Yeah. Um, yeah you can pass them down. The yeah. But I like to try to find them like on sale on like the real real or something. Cause they're otherwise very overpriced. Yes. Yes. Makes sense. Um, but that's such a good hack because we aren't going too many places, but if you need to throw it in your um, stroller or glove compartment, it's like easy. Uh, Okay. And where can my listeners find you? On Instagram, we are at rocketsofawesome.com and I'm at the RLB, which are my initials. And our website is rocketsofawesome.com. Amazing. Rachel, you are a breath of fresh air. Thank you so much for sharing your story and simplifying our lives. You know, parenting in a pandemic and otherwise is really, really hard. And you're just doing us a solid by taking care of the clothing component. (laughs) Trying. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to my interview with Rachel Blumenthal of Rockets of Awesome. I feel like our chat was awesome. I'm so glad we got into all the things from entrepreneurship to motherhood. So today was actually my 100th episode. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel, for being part of this special milestone. I still remember launching That's Total Mom Sense a little over two years ago, well before the pandemic, because I wanted to create a space for motherhood and parenting stories that follows three pillars. It's informative, engaging, and inclusive. So as you guys know, uh, listening to the show, this isn't a place where we're doing any banter or commiserating. It's instead a platform for my very distinguished guests to share their success stories and share how parenting has forever changed them. And they, in turn, can leave us with their life lessons and tangible tips. And as you all know, I recently launched That's Total Mom Sense merchandise to make you feel comfy and cozy as you tune in to the podcast. I have hoodies, tanks, mugs, earbuds, pens, and notepads to truly enhance your listening experience. So to commemorate 100 podcasts, just a pinch me moment, log on to my website, that's totalmomsense.com and go shopping. Click on shop and you'll see all the merch right there. Buy anything that you do like and resonates with you and then post a photo of yourself on social media and tag me at Kanika Chada Gupta. And I will sift through all of the many photos. I'll share them, repost them, and we'll choose a winner for the most creative post wearing my That Total Mom Sense gear. And that winner will receive a $100 Amazon gift card. Thanks again for listening to today's episode and following me on my journey. It is such a joy to have you all in my corner. You can write to me if you have any uh, ideas or comments or anything like that uh, to that's total mom sense at gmail.com. 
And reviews always help. So you can leave me a review wherever you listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Good Bods, which I absolutely love because you get to recommend podcasts of your choice to your friends within the social network. So share and review and leave me some love. Remember, always trust your mom sense. Stay strong, super mamas. See you next time. That's total mom sense.